I have five truths about the heart of Christ to share with you today. Just five truths. If you're keeping notes, you only have five sentences to write down. I think you can handle that. So today's message is for you if you are discouraged, if you are frustrated, if you're weary, if you're disenchanted or or cynical, or if you're running on empty, today's message is for you. If you're running on fumes, this is for you. Those whose Christians' lives who, who feel like you're constantly running up one of those descending escalators, I won't ask if you're like me and you've ever tried that. You know, the descending escalators at the mall? You ever, you ever gone up the wrong way? It's challenging, yeah. Sometimes your life can feel that way. I mean, you're, you're putting a lot of effort in, right? Trying to get up and it doesn't, you're not going anywhere. Uh, do, do you have a suspicion that God's patience is wearing thin with you? Today's message is for you. Uh, those of us who find ourselves thinking, well, how could I mess up again? I mean, I just last week did this. Why again? Yeah, if you're like me, this message is for you. If, if, if you're one of those people, who, you, you know God loves you, but you suspect you've deeply disappointed Him. This message is for you. Are you in pain and, and you, you feel like you're living in one of those numbing darknesses? This message is for you. So friends, if, if you fit any of those categories, I, I want to encourage you, because God has been using His Word in my life to encourage me. It, it, it really helped me get through lockdown. And so this message is going to be very helpful, because how this will help is you're going to see the heart of Christ, as the Puritans said, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. That title's not original with me. I got it from the Puritans. And so, in fact, I've, uh, I've been re- doing a lot of reading, and God uses old dead people often in my life. And uh, I encourage you to read old dead people. Um, it's great encouragement. A, pr- a particular book I've been reading called Gentle and Lowly. So let's think about who is Christ really? I mean, he's not sitting here with us today in, in, you know, in flesh and blood. So who is he really? You, you need to answer, be able to answer this question. So let's just think of five truths today that show us the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. If, that, if, if you meet a sinner and sufferer category, then this message is for you. First of all, we see here in Matthew 11 that Christ is gentle and lowly in heart. Now this is significant because... I'm I'm pretty sure it's the only place in the Bible where you get to see the heart of Christ uh, written out in words. Jesus himself says, this is my heart for sinners and sufferers. Look at Matthew 11, 28 to start with. Matthew 11, 28. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you haven't memorized those words, I I would encourage you to do so. So notice Jesus says, this is my heart. Now, the, the word heart is 
kind of confusing in our modern English today. So please don't think of, when Jesus says, this is my heart, don't think of that organ in your body pumping blood. So what is the heart? Well, when the Bible speaks of the heart there, in verse 29, it's not speaking about our emotional life only. Right? Did you catch that? It's not your emotional life only. It includes your emotional life. But it's talking about the central uh, uh, the, the central animating center of all that you do. It's the center of all you do. Think of it that way. The heart is not just part of what we are, but it, think of it as the center of who we are. And so our heart is what defines and directs us. And, and that, that's why Proverbs says you have to guard that center of who you are, what, what's directing everything you do. Out of it comes all the issues of life, Proverbs says. So that's why you have to guard it. It's precious. And so Jesus is, is telling us here, what is most true about him? Of all the things Jesus could have said, this is amazing. Think of it. He says two things. This is the center of Jesus. He says, I am gentle and lowly. That is profound. So what does it mean for Jesus? Start with the first one. What does it mean for Jesus when he says, I am gentle? In other words, think of it this way. <clears throat> think of negative. Jesus is not one of those trigger-happy people. Sorry if you're not into guns. Like, like, I love guns and rifles and pistols. And, right? He's not one of those people who just wants to, to shoot everything that's moving. Because he's not trigger-happy. He's not harsh. He's not one of those reactionary kind of people He's not easily exasperated. In fact, he is the most understanding person in the entire universe. Without question, unparalleled, nothing touches him in this category. Okay, so he's gentle. Great. Well, what, is, what does it mean for Jesus to be lowly? What does that mean? Well, the, the, digging into that Greek word lowly there, it's the idea that Jesus is accessible. In other words, there's no prerequisites in order to come to Jesus. Jesus invites us here, verse 28, come to me, he says. You don't have a bunch of red tape to come to Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a secretary that you have to somehow get through to get into his office. There's no hoops that you have to jump through to come to Jesus. He is accessible. And you say, okay, that sounds really good, but how do I know if this qualifies for me? How do I know if I qualify here? Well, look at verse 28, right? Verse 28 tells us who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. See if this matches you, right? Because Jesus says, you qualify for this wonderful communion and fellowship with him if you fit the categories of all who labor and are heavy laden. Is that you? If that's you, then you qualify. In other words, what Jesus is saying, you don't need to somehow unburden yourself. You don't have to get yourself in order before you come to Him. It's those who come to Jesus. In other words, it's actually... Whatever your burden is, is, is what actually qualifies you to come to Jesus. 
And you, by the way, you don't have to pay for this either. There, there is no payment required to come to Jesus. Because Jesus says here, I will give you rest. What a great promise. I will give you rest. Okay, well here's another question for you to think about. Is Christ gentle and lowly to everyone? Because I, I, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, somebody at least here is probably thinking, well, I'm exempted from this. So is this for everybody? Does it include me? Just think about those precious words. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And by the way, that is Christ's own testimony. That's not somebody else making this up. This is his heart for you, friends. This is who he is. However, this is not who he is to everyone. Did you hear me? It's not for everybody because Jesus says this is who he is for those who come to him. This is for these people that noted verse 28 who are taking his yoke upon them, these are the people who are crying out to Jesus for help. So, do you really believe that you can go to Christ at any time, anywhere? If you do, you qualify. And you might be sitting there thinking, wow, this sounds really good. And it it does. It's, It's amazing. But is this truth real? Right? We want to know, is it real? Or is it one of those, uh, you know, you know the, the, the really fine print in the contract that just sounds too good to be true? Well, friends, here's point number two. Second truth about the heart of Christ is that Christ's life proves his heart is real. Right? You ever heard that saying? You know, your, your, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You heard that? I love that saying. Because some people say, well, okay, Jesus, you know, it's, it's nice for him to say this. He's talking. He's doing a lot of talking here in Matthew 11. But prove it with the walking, the life. Well, Jesus proved it with his life. Christ's life proves his heart. So what you actually see Christ claiming with his words coming out of his mouth here in Matthew eleven twenty nine. You're going to see Jesus proving it in his actions and what he does over and over and over again throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't have time to look at all the examples. Let me just give you a few to think about here. Because you're going to see him prove this with his actions. What what he is, he actually does it. He backs it up. He cannot act any other way, in fact. For example, look at chapter 8. That's in Matthew. Chapter 8. All right, please turn to your Bibles, Matthew 8, verse 2. We'll just look at a few examples. You can see how Jesus is walking the talk. So Matthew 8, verse 2, it says, Behold, a leper came to him, that's Jesus, and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. There's a lot of examples I could share, but, but I, I want you to see here in this, this particular text, the word will is both the leper's request as well as Christ's answer in it with that Greek word, I will. 
that, that means that Jesus' wish, Jesus' desire here is to heal. The leper was asking about Christ's deepest desire. Lord, if you will, what is your deepest desire, Lord? And Christ's answer, Christ's deepest desire was to heal that man. So do you see how Christ's life is proving his heart? He's backing up his words with action. And he does this continually. Continually. Look look in chapter 9. You'll see another one here. In chapter 9, you have a group of men who bring their paralyzed friend to Christ. And Christ, it's, it's interesting what he does here. He can't even wait for these guys to ask him for help. Because look what it says in chapter uh, Matthew 9, verse 2. Matthew 9, verse 2 says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, they haven't even spoken yet. He sees their faith. He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> incredible. It's incredible. Christ is incredible. And so before they could even open their mouths to ask Christ for help, Christ couldn't even stop himself. These words of assurance and calm just come flooding out of his mouth here. Look at another example here in chapter 9, verse 36. Because here's Jesus in Matthew 9. He's traveling from town to town. He's ministering as he's traveling. And look what the text says about Christ here in chapter 9, verse 36. Chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we're look, as you think about the heart of Christ and these five truths, they're showing us what the heart of Christ is like. Notice this. What does Christ do for helpless and harassed people like us? Well, look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, Jesus went through all all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus' life is proving his heart. It proves his heart. So he's teaching. He's healing their diseases. And simply seeing the helplessness of the crowds here ignites this flame of pity within Jesus' own heart. And it's worked out in his actions. Now, my friends, I could keep going. There's dozens and dozens of examples. Time and again, it is, it is these people who are the, the, the morally disgusting people, the socially reviled people, the undeserving, who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ is actually, he just naturally gravitates to these kinds of people. And that's why Jesus' own enemies accuse Jesus of being a friend of sinners. And trust me, that was not a term of endearment. That was not a compliment from Jesus' enemies when they called him a friend of sinners. And over and over again, we see how Jesus' life is proving his heart. Well, we need to move on to another aspect of Christ's heart, another truth. And like I said, I've been learning a lot from old dead guys. 
and uh, here's here's the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. He he wrote an amazing statement, and and I'll just put part of it up on the screen here. How would you finish this sentence? Because it was really thought provoking as I was reading it. How would you finish what Thomas Goodwin wrote here? It's on the screen. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by. And if you're sitting there thinking like I was, wow, uh, there, there's actually multiple ways to finish that sentence. That's actually true ways to finish that sentence. And that's true. That, that, is, that is certainly true. There, there's many ways you could actually finish that sentence. Biblical ways to answer that, that would be true. But here's what Goodwin says as he completes his own sentence. He says this on the next screen. That Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. End quote. So what can we learn about Christ from Scripture? Well, here's the third truth about the heart of Christ. That Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. I'll elaborate on this by looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Please turn your Bible to Hebrews 12. Hebrews, toward the back of your Bible, before James, Hebrews 12. Now that, that statement is amazing when you meditate upon it. It sounds amazing, but we need to ask the question, is it actually biblical? Is that a biblical statement, or is it just a uh, a warm, fuzzy one? Well, look what the Bible says about Christ in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2 exhorts us to keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now please notice your little phrase in your Bible, friends. For the joy. That is a powerful phrase. For the joy. You say, what joy? You you need to ask the question, what joy is that referring to? In other words... What was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? Because I don't think Jesus was looking for suffering and torture and physical pain on the cross. So then, what what joy did Jesus have in his heart as he's there? I think the answer, and I'll try to prove this from Hebrews, is that the, the joy is seeing his people forgiven. Seeing his people forgiven. Now, that's a powerful statement again. So how do we know that's the truth, though? Well, look at the last phrase there in verse 2. That that last phrase is really helpful because it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he is, friends, right now. Right now, as we speak, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery coming out of the Hebrews here, of course. And so, 
That phrase, though, should help us remember what is the whole point of Hebrews? It's being written to Hebrews who knew their Old Testament. It shows that Jesus is supreme over everything, particularly the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system and that whole priesthood and so forth. Jesus is your final high priest, and has, he is the one who's made your final atoning sacrifice and the one who has completely covered the sins of his people. Hebrews proves that. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, in several places, we, we see Christ seated there at the right hand of God. Now that, that, that phrase there is associated with his priestly atoning work. It's mentioned several times. Let me just give you one example in chapter 10. Look at, look at chapter 10, verse 12. Notice the connection of Jesus seating with his atoning work here. Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's at least three other times in Hebrews it says the exact same, well, not exactly, but a similar concept, okay? It's an important truth in Hebrews. Christ seating at God's right hand is associated with his priestly atoning sacrifice and work for his people. Now, you say, oh, that sounds great, but what does that mean for me? Well, some people, they, they look at the heart of Christ, and some people tend to think that when we approach Christ for help, we somehow detract from Christ. We're somehow lessening Christ, or we impoverish Christ because of, you know, because we're sinners and we're so needy and helpless. My friend, Christ's heart is not drained when you come to Him. His heart is actually filled up all the more by our coming to Him. See, when... Uh, when we partake of Christ's atoning work and we are communing with Him despite our sinfulness, we're actually laying hold of Christ's own deepest longing and joy. He longs for this. He, he has joy in His heart when you come to Him. He is not like your workmate or one of those family members you have. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about? You know that workmate who always comes and annoys you and you see them coming and you're like, oh no, not again. You know what I'm talking about? They're so needy and they're always, they're pouring, you know, themselves out on you. And, and of course, you're the solution to all their problems, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about? That family member, that workmate, and, and you see them and you want to hide. Jesus doesn't do that. When you come to him again and again and again, he's like, great to see you, friend. How can I help you? Right? That's, that's his, his heart here. And you, you, you might be like that, uh, that New Zealander who says, yeah, nah, bro. But Christ is not here. That's true. He's, he's not literally physically in flesh and blood here. So, Here's why you need the next truth about Christ's heart, friends. Here it is. Number four, even though Christ is now in heaven, he is just as open and tender towards sinners and sufferers 
as he was when he was on earth. He hasn't changed. His heart hasn't changed for you. You say, wow, that's amazing. Where is that in the Bible? Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Now, I'll give you the context in a moment, but look, look at the central verse. that Hebrews 4.15 is the anchor of the context. It's the anchor. So look at Hebrews 4.15. 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's amazing. But my friends, do you realize it comes in a context, right? There's verses surrounding verse 15, right? <laughs> so let me just point out what's going out around this as well as that verse. So what I want you to do is just kind of step back here for a moment. Get, get, get the broader context. Look, let's look at verse 14 to start with, okay? Because verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me highlight, there's really cool stuff going on in this text, okay? Let me highlight a few things. Hopefully the grammar's not too overwhelming for you. Now in verses 14 and 16, obviously surrounding verse 15, you have 14 and 16 each have an exhortation to you, right? So in verse 14, notice the exhortation is, it is an exhortation to fidelity in our doctrine about God, it's the fidelity of our doctrine about God, because it says, let us hold fast our confession. God cares about your doctrine. And then in verse 16, that's an exhortation to have confidence then in our communion with God. You've heard me say it many times, not original with me, your theology will drive your methodology. Your theology always drives your methodology. So let hold fast to your confession... Verse 14, and then the, the center there is verse 15, but then it's also it'll also work out in, in verse 16. You will have confidence then to draw near to God if you believe the right things about Him. All right, let me, let me show you a few other things here. That word for, that begins verse 15 is signifying that verse 15 then is the ground or the basis, the foundation of verse 14. And then then that word back down there in verse 16, the word then in your English Bible, is also signifying that verse 15 is the ground, the basis, the foundation. So do you see what's happening here? So verse 14 and 16 are all pointing at verse 15 because verse 15 is the anchor here of that particular passage it's surrounding it It, you, you could say there's implications in verse 14 and 16 
coming out of this great truth in verse 15. And so the burden of that anchor uh, verse is actually that Christ is in union with his people. Now, we often assume that Christ is with us. Uh, in other words, he's, he's on our side. Uh, he is present and helping when, when our life is going well. You ever felt that way? Yeah, yeah, Christ, Christ is with me. He's on my side when life is going well. Well, guess what? This, test, this text here actually says the opposite. It says the opposite. It is in our weaknesses that Christ sympathizes with. He's sympathizing with us in verse 15, right? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, Christ's sympathy, by the way, it doesn't mean that, that he's just uh, cool and he's detached in his pity for you. Oh, no, not, 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 no, no, no. In our pain, Christ is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as if that suffering is his own, even though it isn't. His heart is feeling drawn into your distress. His human nature is engaging in our troubles. Thank God he has two natures in the one person forever. He has a human nature just like you. And so his love cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. When you are suffering, his love cannot be held back. His heart is drawn to your pain and suffering. Now you might be asking, okay, oh, that, that's great, that sounds awesome, but how can Christ be with his people in their pain? I mean, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, because some people are like, they like mock these kind of passages. Yeah, right. How can Christ be with his people in their pain? Well, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, He has been tempted or tested, might be another word you might use. He is tempted or tested as we are. And by the way, not only that, but look what the text says. It says, He has been tempted or tested as we are in every respect. Every respect. Now, the good news for us is that the difficult path that we're on is not unique to us. Nobody here or anywhere in this world can say, my, my pain and my suffering is totally unique to me. Nobody else has ever done this before. You can't say that. Well, sorry. You could say that, but it's not true. He has journeyed on, on this already. He has gone before you. He's not just one of those doctors who prescribes the medicine to you, and he's kind of somehow, you know, he's not one of those doctors sitting in the ivory tower who doesn't know what you're going through, right? Christ is the great physician who's already experienced your disease. He's been there and done that. He has the T-shirt, and then he prescribes you the medicine. You see the difference? So Christ knows, friends, all the things you go through. He's experienced thirst, hunger. He was despised and rejected and scorned and shamed. He was embarrassed. He was abandoned. He was misunderstood. He was scorned. He was abused. He was lonely. He was tortured. And he was killed unjustly. And so my friend, consider your own life for a moment. Consider your own life for a moment. When a relationship goes sour, 
when the feelings of futility come flooding into your life, when it feels like life is just passing you by, and some of us might be having a midlife crisis, and when it seems that your one shot of significance has just slipped through your fingers, and when you can't sort out your emotions, when your friends let you down, when a family member betrays you and stabs you in the back, when you feel misunderstood, my friend, right there, right there, you have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like. You have a close friend who sits down beside you. He puts his arm around you and he says, I know, I've, I've already experienced that and I'm here for you. I am with you. He embraces us because he is with us and for us. Do you see that in the text, I hope? But what's our tendency? I, I know some of you, some of you have had really bad family lives. So you, you doubt God's word. You doubt the heart of Christ because you're looking at your mother and father and you impose your view of your mother and father on Christ and you say, that's the way Christ is. Wrong. Wrong. You have to trust the word of God. See, our tendency sometimes is to feel that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we actually are, right? See, as you sink further into your pain and your suffering and your despair, sometimes you, you start to feel isolated. I, I know, I've been there, done that. But fortunately, the Bible corrects our wrong thinking. Our pain is never outstripped by, by what He Himself is sharing with us. We're never alone, in fact, Jesus said, I'm always with you. And so that sorrow that, that feels so isolating, it makes us feel lonely and abandoned, was endured by Christ in the past, and Christ is now shouldering that even in the present. And so, again, look at verse 14, because as verse 14 tells us there, Christ has gone into heaven... But that doesn't mean that he's some, somehow distant from your pain. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know what's going on in your life and that he's not there for you. So friends, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who is not going to sit up at the right hand of the throne of God and just lob down TED Talks to you. Sorry, I just made a cultural blunder there. Some of you may not even know what I'm talking about. Right? It, uh, <laughs> Sorry if you don't know what a TED Talk is. But he's not just lobbing down uh, talks to you out of heaven here. Let me throw another one at you. Get that. No, he's not doing that. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. That's the idea here. You say, why? I mean, that sounds really good. But you need to understand his heart is actually bound up with your heart. It's actually inseparable. Okay, there's one more we need to talk about before we close. Turn over to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, may I just remind you, chapter 5 is, chapter divisions are not inspired. So chapter 5 is actually continuing this line of thought. Because as we saw in, in chapter 4, verse 15, you see the what of Christ's 
priestly role. You saw the what of Christ's priestly role there, chapter 4, verse 15. And as we come into chapter 5 now, you're going to see the how. How does Christ act on who he is? Look at 5, verse 2. 5, verse 2 says that Christ can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So here's the fifth truth of Christ's heart, friends, is that Christ can deal gently. He can deal gently. Now, what does that mean, though, for Christ to deal gently? We need to understand that, that powerful truth. So if you take the the Greek word and break it down into two parts, the prefix of the Greek word is metro. And metro has the sense of restraint or moderation. It's restraint or moderation. And then the root there in the Greek word is, is, is the Greek word pathio. And pathio refers to passion or suffering. And you put the, the two ideas in, into one Greek word, and it's this idea that Christ is not just you're like one of those people who just throws their hands up in the air when, when they engage with somebody who's exasperating, right? You ever done that? Maybe parents do. You, you've done that with your children. Maybe you've done that with someone, you know, a workmate. You know, the, the person's so exasperating, you've had enough, so you just throw your hands up in the air, and you take a big sigh, you say, I've had enough. Jesus is saying, I have never done that, and I never will do that. I can deal gently. In other words, the idea there is he's calm. Christ is tender with you. He's calming, restrained. He deals with us gently. You say, again, that sounds really wonderful, but who's it referring to? With whom does he deal gently? Is it, is it the person who's, who's um, you know, just made a few moderate failures? Just a few little, you know, white lies and sins, you know, you know, the person who mostly has it together, but, you know, they've made a few mistakes. Is that who this is referring to? Well, may I remind you what the text says in verse 2. Because it says, he can deal gently with who? See if you fit the categories. There's two categories there, right? He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. What's that referring to? Well... <clears throat> Excuse me. The ignorant are way, and, and wayward here are not just two kinds of mild sinners, <laughs> right? It's, it's for everybody. And, and so the idea here, this is the writer's way of including everyone. Everybody fits into one of those two categories. And so let me explain. The ignorant in your text refers to the accidental sins. See, you've... you've ignorantly sinned. You, you didn't know what you were doing, but nevertheless, it's still sin. The wayward person there is referring to the person who deliberately sins. They know it's a sin, but they do it anyway, right? So God's covering everybody. And the beautiful thing is, this is whom he deals with, everybody. And so the point is that Christ deals gently, and only gently, with all sinners who come to him. So don't freak out when Jesus invites you to come to him 
you can go boldly to him. So please consider what all this means for you, friend. It it means that when you sin, and you will, you'll, you'll probably do it several times today and tomorrow and the next day. Several times every day, you'll keep sinning. And so when you sin, you are encouraged to bring your mess to Christ because He will know how to receive you. You say, well, I can't fix my mess. No, that's right, you can't. <laughs> it, it, it's a, your, your life is a mess, just like mine, and go to the only one who can fix it. And He will not handle you roughly. He's, he, he's not going to scold you like maybe a parent has done to you in the past because you come with a mess. He's going to, when you come to Christ, he's not going to scold you. He's actually going to say, friend, yeah, I, 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 know. I know. I know your life is a mess, but I'm here with you and for you. He's going to put his arm around you. He's going to deal with you in the way that is just exactly what you need. He's going to as the text says, deal with you gently. That's what you need, don't you? When your life is a mess, that's what I need when my life is a mess. I, I, don't, I don't want somebody to just, you know, chew me out when I'm, I'm, when I'm already, like, way down at the bottom and feeling bad because of my mess, and then chew me out even more and try to drive me into the ground even farther. Christ doesn't do that. You say, that's incredible, but why? Why would he do that? Why does Christ deal gently with us? Well, look at verse 2. The text says, since he himself is beset with weakness. That's the answer, friends. It, since he himself is beset with weakness. So, And by the way, in the very next verse, it's referring to this high priesthood in general, which which the context is helping to answer this for us. But look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, because of that glorious stuff, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Oh, that's good news. And by the way, of, of, of of course Christ did not offer sacrifices for his own sins, because he had zero sins his entire life. A grand total of zero. But he did experience everything else that it means to live as a real human being. And he lived as a real human being in a real fallen world. He experienced all the weaknesses of the suffering that we have, all our same temptations, and every kind of human limitation that you and I have. He's been there, done that, experienced it. And so, friends, that means the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, guess what? The deeper Christ goes with you. You're never alone any point in this experience of life. And so as we go down into our pain and our anguish, we're actually descending even deeper into the very heart of Christ. I hope you get this. And so, my friends, that's why you come to the application implication part of the book of Hebrews. And it starts off by saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ. So my friends, that's also my exhortation for you. Keep looking to Christ because He deals gently with you. 
And so it's the only way he knows how to be. He is your high priest, and he is the, he is the great high priest who ends all high priests. And so as long as you're fixing your attention on your sin, you're going to fail to see how you can be saved. You're going to fail to deal with your shame and your guilt. But as long as you look to Christ, you will fail to see how you can be in any danger. You'll, you'll not be condemned. Looking inside ourselves, though, we, we can anticipate only harshness. You will experience harshness from Christ. But looking out to Christ, then we can anticipate only gentleness. Only gentleness, because that, is, my friends, is the heart of Christ. So, here's my proposition. Often I put the proposition at the beginning, don't I? Here's the proposition, I think. That God wants you to trust the heart of Christ. Hopefully you can see the heart of Christ. The question is, do you really believe this is Christ? And this is His heart for you. May God enable us to trust the heart of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us Christ and for loving the world and sending Christ. We're thankful that Christ took on human nature. And now He has two natures in in this one person forever. And He lived here amongst us and, and experienced the same things we experience. And so we're thankful He even said what His heart is for us, that He is gentle and lowly in heart. May we trust what the Scripture says to be true about Christ, really, really believe what we believe, so we would live this out. May we not superimpose how we think about our parents, our earthly parents, onto Christ. But may we believe what Christ says about Himself and what the Scripture says about Christ to be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.